You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Good morning. My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. It's good to be gathered today. Also, hello to everybody watching online on Facebook Live or on YouTube or from our church's website. Uh, we think it's really important if you're here in person or you're at home uh, that you stay tuned in during this season uh, to what's going on with your church family. So all you who are here this morning, thanks for being here. Uh, and for those who aren't yet, uh, we're glad you're tuned in at home. Uh, we are in a series called Legit, and it's really simple. It's our last week of it. It's the, the whole, I should say the concept simple, and it's that God wants our beliefs to be legit. Like there is a legitimate set of belief for Christians. God has revealed his truth to us He has given us the scriptures, and he wants us to rightly believe them. It's easy to maybe think, well, who are you to say what's right and what's wrong? Well, I'm not the one to say what's right and what's wrong. God is the one who tells us what is true and what is not true. So we need to make sure we search the scriptures to understand these things. And during a pandemic and uncertainty and political unrest and all the things we see happening in our country right now, more than ever, we need to make sure that we have a legit theology, We have a legit set of beliefs. What we believe matters tremendously. So what we've been trying to do these past few weeks is look at the idea of what it means to live in a legit set of doctrine, beliefs, theology, and how much it matters. Uh, So Brian Seagraves, the first week, one of our church members who uh, teaches here regularly, uh, he shared with us what are these significant beliefs from Scripture, these kind of non-negotiable Christian beliefs from 1 Corinthians 15 and why they actually matter and how to even really understand what they are. Hunter Levine, our college pastor last week, said, uh, he preached about how God wants our legitimacy to unify us. He wants the church to be, have you with for us to have unity together, that that's a sign of legitimacy. That the church is one, that the church is united, the church loves one another, and how that love and unity is based on the truth of God's word. So I'm gonna do a conclusion this week, kind of a big picture overview, and then give a scriptural example of how in the early church, when the church was first being formed, how the Bible dealt with times when theology would not be very legitimate in the church family. Before that, kind of a big picture. Here's the book of Jude, a very small book in the Bible. Jude chapter one, he wrote this. To those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. What a cool set of ideas and words. Those who are believers are called by God. It means God draws us to himself. They're loved by God the Father, meaning the affection that a earthly father who is an imperfect father has for their children magnify it perfectly times 100 and that's the benefits we have as the called people of God is that we're loved by our father. We are his children. He doesn't just love us, he also likes us. Like he delights in his people. That was a water bottle. Uh, So he delights in his people. That we have access to him as children have access to their parent. That God is our heavenly father and he keeps us. We just sang that in the song Blessed Assurance. It's keeping me, we sang, it's keeping me that what God has given us in Christ, that our salvation, that God holds on to it, that he keeps it, he protects it. Like fantastic news here. She says, based on this, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Why? Because of what you know. Because you're called by God, loved by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. Because of that, have peace, have love, have mercy, all those things in your mind and your heart. And then in verse three, he changes gears. He says, dear friends, showing his affection for the church, for the people. He says, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, 
Even though I just want to talk about God's love for us and the gospel and sit around together and just celebrate that and talk about how great God is and all the things he's done in our lives. Man, like I was eager to write about that, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. I just want to sit around in unity and just talk about God's love and the gospel and how amazing it is, but, but we got some problems here. So I got to shift gears a little bit, and instead, even though I'm eager to write about our salvation, instead we got to talk about contending for the faith, protecting our beliefs that God himself has delivered to us once and for all. The truth has been settled. That God's word has been written. What that looks like is, he's basically saying that celebrating the gospel should be a matter of eagerness, contending for it a matter of necessity. It shouldn't be fun for people to have to contend for the faith all the time, to have to defend the faith. So what we should be eager to do is celebrate Jesus and the good news of the gospel, but out of necessity at times, we have to make sure we're getting the gospel right. We have to make sure we have legitimate beliefs concerning this love of God we celebrate together. Because doctrines don't exist in a theological vacuum. Each doctrine, each set of beliefs finds its ultimate meaning in relation to the entire scriptures and to the gospel story. So some doctrines may appear to be kind of relatively minor in themselves, but they're essential in the way they function towards the entire idea of the Bible, kind of like a plank in a bridge that looks sort of unimportant at the time, but in fact it keeps it from collapsing that every piece actually matters in it. So here's just a quick little snapshot example of some of the times God is calling for the church to be legit, to contend for legitimacy. You see, he writes this, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and good conscience, then he says, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith. Rejecting sound theology is a shipwrecking of the faith. And then he goes, and here's who they are. Whoa. He says among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. He's like, these guys whom I have delivered to Satan, so you may be taught not to blaspheme. So they may be taught not to blaspheme. He goes, I've, I've let them go out of the church. We've delivered them elsewhere, so at that time, hopefully, they'll see the seriousness of it, they'll learn their lesson, then they can return one day when they know they can't teach things that are contrary to what God has revealed. Out of his care for the church, he says, watch out for these two guys specifically and what they're teaching and what they're saying. In 2 Timothy, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. It says, avoid irreverent and empty speech since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness. And what's he link that to? Irreverent and empty speech. He links it to teaching, to beliefs. He says, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. And then he names people. <laughs> he says, Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. He said, I'm not, I'm not being unfair to them. Here's what they've done. Here's a specific example. Let's not speak in generalities. I'm not going to be unfair to these guys. He goes, here's what they've done. They've departed from the truth. Well, how? By saying the resurrection has already taken place. The resurrection of the dead. That it's already happened. When the scriptures are clear that the resurrection of the dead will take place when Jesus returns. So almost what he's saying is that the final resurrection is not dependent upon Christ. 
because he hadn't returned yet. He goes, and they're ruining the faith of some. That's why this matters. Because they're leading other people astray. If we want to love others, care for our neighbors, strengthen people during certain times and uncertain times, we have to make sure we preach and speak and believe what is true from the Gospels and from the Scriptures. He said this, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He says, guard it. Guard this good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Guard these things. So how do we flush some of this out? Well, the first one, this gives some examples of sort of, I guess, a list of beliefs of what matters and what really, they all matter, but how we approach these things. We're gonna be unified, we're gonna be legit, we're gonna care about what matters. One, uh, there are beliefs that are crucial and non-negotiable. These define the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Two weeks ago, Brian Seagrave spoke about some of these. I'd encourage you to go online uh, to our website or to iTunes and to catch up and to listen. These critical beliefs that matter. So like if two of us are, you know, two Christians, and one of us believes that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and the other one believes that Jesus just died on the cross and that was it, it's not that we just can agree to disagree. One of us aren't Christians. Okay, that's what we mean by non-negotiable beliefs. Like if there's no resurrection, if Jesus didn't literally rise from the grave, uh, that means that like if, you don't like if you don't believe that he did that, that's a pretty big deal. That makes you not a Christian. Like there's certain things that are non-negotiable. The death of Christ, a bodily resurrection, like that we're saved by grace through faith. I mean, these things are non-negotiable beliefs for Christians. We must contend for these things. It's not an issue of unity when it comes to these. It's an issue of salvation. It's an issue of being saved, non-negotiable beliefs for Christians. The second one are convictions. While not core beliefs, they have significant impact on the ministry and values of the local church. So an example of that would be uh, something like baptism. So our church holds to the fact that baptism is for believers. It's for people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a visible portrait of the invisible reality that our sins have been washed away, we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised in Christ, but that's, that's what our church believes. Do we think you have to believe in believer's baptism in order to be a Christian? Absolutely not. We think it's really important, it's a conviction we hold to, to where if you're gonna be a member of this church, we think it's so important, you need to be someone who has been baptized, but it's a conviction, not a, what, we, what I called earlier, a crucial and non-negotiable. Uh, for example, uh, Wildwood Presbyterian Church here in town. Great friends of our church. I've preached there. One of their pastors has preached here. Great relationship. Uh, their pastor was probably who I was speaking to the most during the pandemic and when to reopen. All these kind of conversations. Brothers in Christ. I mean, like, same team. All in. I mean, like, we are, we are truly, like, very similar in how we think about things. Just a great church. We're for them. I personally, and, and, and I personally would not be a member there. Not because I don't think it's a wonderful place. I think it's an amazing church. But because baptism we differ on, and that's a deep conviction for me. So we're on the same team. It's not a non-negotiable, but it's a matter of church membership for me because that conviction that we hold. And there are people uh, who maybe come from a 
PCA kind of background uh, who maybe would not go to church here because of that reason. They don't think that baptism is for believers. They wouldn't say we're not Christians. There's charity there. There's, t- there's, there's oneness there, but we're not going to have a church. Co- we're not going to congregate together. See, local church membership matters. Local church convictions actually matter, and they don't divide us. They unite us over things that we hold to, especially convictions. And the third one are just opinions. Opinions. Issues that are less clear, significant, and generally are not worth dividing over. This is what politics should be for church members. Sadly, it's not often, but like political differences, this should be one of those. Maybe how you view uh, alcohol, and like if a Christian should drink alcohol or not, that should be an opinion. Uh, if things that the scriptures aren't clear about or maybe are silent towards uh, or maybe give uh, some gray concerning uh, would be things that are just opinions that we can hold to. You can even hold to them passionately. But you can be part of the same church and the same membership and have different opinions on things. Actually, to me, it's a sign of a healthy and strong church if we can be united together and have different opinions on things. So I want to give an example from the scriptures of how uh, the church had to deal with some problematic things before uh, regarding those who were not holding to legit beliefs. It's from the book of Galatians chapter 1, and this is what Christians have had to do for centuries, contending for the faith, sorting things out, making sure we know what is true and what is not, warning of false teachers, all these things. Of this, this is not new. Christians have always had to do this. So much the New Testament is geared towards this because God loves us and wants us to know his word. Uh, so I read this from, uh, I did some study from Ligonier's website. It's a great website. Now on that website, it gave some just really helpful information about Galatians in the background. And, and he says that to begin the letter that Paul launches into the subject early of false teaching and writes with a fiery tone. He even employs sarcasm, threats, warnings, and rebukes to get his point across. He leaves no doubt about the seriousness and urgency of the topic of the letter. His burden he has is to defend the true gospel of God's grace. So usually in a letter, Paul will begin by saying, hey everybody, how are you? How's your grandma? I had the best sweet tea last time I came over. You know, I hope everybody's well. You know, grace to you, peace to you. And that, that was a really close game. Glad we watched it together. I mean, it's just very personal. You know, just very like, just hope everybody's great. Tell Aunt Susie hello. I mean, all these kind of things where he gets into his letter. And this one, he's like, hey, what's up? We have problems. Like, here we go. Like, no small talk on the phone. Let's get right to it. Because we've got some serious things going on. Kim Riddlebarger wrote this, there is perhaps no portion of Holy Scripture which packs the punch of Paul's letter like the one to the churches in Galatia. In this letter, Paul sets out what is his most passionate defense of the gospel found in all of the New Testament. And here's what he says. He says, I'm amazed, verse six of chapter one, that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He goes, well, hold on, not that there is another gospel, but there are some of you who are, tr- who are troubling, some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Because even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. Now, why does Paul care so much about this? Well, he tells us in that chapter, that passage I just read, to distort the the gospel is to desert God. To distort the gospel is to desert God. He's not just saying that 
he's not just saying, oh, you had the wrong beliefs. He goes, no, you have left and went to a different gospel. You have abandoned your faith. You've abandoned the Lord. And as a result of really Jewish opposition to the preaching of the good news, Paul and Barnabas started preaching to the Gentiles and many of them were converted. But soon after Paul and Barnabas left the Galatian region to go start more churches, Jewish converts uh, began really teaching the new Christians that they had to also submit to the law of Moses and they had to undergo circumcision in order to be regarded as being right with God, as being justified before God. That it wasn't just the blood of Jesus that did this for us. It wasn't our faith and repentance. It wasn't the death and resurrection of Christ that saved us, where Jesus took on a death that we deserved, forgiving us of our sins, declaring us not guilty, giving us his righteousness, as the scriptures proclaim over and over again. Instead, they said, no, you have to be a part of the law of Moses. You have to get circumcised. So imagine being like 35-year-old male, and you come to faith in Christ. You're not Jewish. You're a Gentile. You come to hear the good news. And all of a sudden they're saying, oh, by the way, you gotta get circumcised. I'd be like, can you tell me about Buddhism again? That's not like a great option. Can you tell me about that? I mean, this, this was hurting the church. It was keeping people from the good news. They did not believe, in other words, that Jesus' death and resurrection, that his righteousness was sufficient to save sinners. We needed more than that. It was Jesus, yes, they believed that, plus the law of Moses, plus circumcision, and this is what we call false teaching pointing people away from the grace of loan of Jesus Christ. This is what we call false teaching. Not agree to disagree, not can't we all get along. He's saying, I'm astonished you've turned away from this. Now these false teachers weren't flat out denying the death of Christ. They weren't even denying that people needed to trust in Jesus in order to be saved from their sins. They were more subtle than that. It's usually how it works. To their way of thinking, the death of Christ was necessary for salvation because it removed the guilt of past sin, but they believe that faith in Jesus Christ is not sufficient in and of itself to render us, to declare us righteous before God. So Paul is not only astonished as he wrote, his words amazed at the error itself, at the false teaching, but he expresses the amazement of how quickly they believe this. Because I can't believe how quickly you've turned to it. Why we talk about this kind of stuff is we're so prone to the latest thing, to the newest teaching, the latest Instagram preacher, whatever it might be, it's so easy to captivate us. And what makes us do that? What is it in us that will make us abandon right teaching quickly, even subtly, for something else? He says in verse 10, for am I not trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. These Galatian Christians, these Gentile Christians were going forward and getting circumcised because they wanted the other people to think they were spiritual enough. They wanted the Jewish leaders to think they were real Christians. We wanted to please people, or maybe they wanted to keep the peace, they wanted to keep unity. Maybe sometimes churches want to change their beliefs or accommodate in order to stay in step with culture, to not seem out of touch. The churches of Galatia were very young when Paul sent them this letter, very young. Yet he expected that they, that all of their members, not just their leaders, that they would, when it comes to their doctrine, be alert enough to discern the true gospel from counterfeits. That's why discipleship matters so much. 
That's all the things we provide that we'll be ramping up again soon enough, like our equip classes. That's why they matter. Not because we're trying to win an argument, not that we're trying to be any, none of those kind of things. That we can discern. We can be prepared for mission. We can learn how to love our neighbor better, love our spouse better, be a better friend. Everything that comes from the scriptures. How to deal with pain, how to deal with tragedy. All things come from a right understanding and a legit theology from the Bible. He wrote this, for I want you to know, verse 11, brothers and sisters, the gospel preached to me is not of human origin. If I did not receive it from a human source, I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason we have God's word is God has spoken it. He has given it to us. See, faithfulness to the gospel is the standard by which every preacher in Christ's church will be judged. Everyone. Not in their charisma or how they make you feel, but on what is true. Because we all have the tendency to drift towards human-centered, man-made gospels. We drift there. Functionally believing the true gospel of Christ is not enough for us. We do have to add more things to it, that Jesus really isn't enough. But the gospel of God's grace is not by nature designed to please humans. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, it's foolishness to those who are unbelievers. It's, it's designed to please God. The gospel, first and foremost, is for God's glory. That is one sign of a false gospel. It's somehow it tastes exactly as we want it to taste. Exactly as we should have expected. If the gospel that we are used to is something that we could have made up ourselves, we can be sure it is not the gospel from God. Just be a good person. Try harder. Be sincere. Have your good deeds outweigh your bad. I mean, all those kind of things that come at us. Have a good heart. Those all are complete human inventions and human understandings and ideas. In chapter two, he says this, but we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment. Why? So the truth of the gospel will be preserved for you. That we wanted you to be able to carry it on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And guess what? They did. And we're recipients of it today. Because they weren't willing to say, yes, it's through Jesus, absolutely, but you gotta add these things to it too. They contended for it. So his purpose is not just to win an argument, but he's determined to fight for the spiritual lives of the Galatian believers. And getting the gospel right is crucial. It really is a matter of spiritual life and death. Like if you miss this, if you miss what is the gospel, what is the purpose of Christ's death, how is one saved, how is one justified, then you miss God. You miss it completely. Like if you miss this, you miss the whole story. And this message is great news he's given the Galatians for sinners because it reveals that salvation from first to last is God's work and not dependent on anything of us. That it's all God's work from the start to the finish and not dependent upon our actions. Why is this so important? Well, lots of reasons, but I'm gonna summarize it in verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If you can be saved from your sins by being circumcised, or being a good person, or having your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, or having a good heart, or having nice manners, or coming from a Christian family, then Jesus died for nothing. 
at the very heart of the letter, he identifies the central issue, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. All true proclamations of the gospel must center on Christ. They don't start with Jesus, they center there. He's the answer to the deep, profound human problem we all have of brokenness, of sin, of separation from God. And some gospels seem to be about God, but they miss entirely the cross of Christ. A really kind of human-pleasing gospel, not a gospel of divine origin. God has designed all things to exalt his son, on the cross and through his empty tomb and his promised return again. And any gospel that is not centered on the cross of Jesus Christ is not truly a gospel that God has given us. It's a distortion of the good news. He says this in chapter five, starting to close out his letter. He says, you are running well. Like, what, what's going on here? Who, who, who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? Like, what happened? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. It's not from God. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I, I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. God's going to deal with these people. He cares about his children. If someone led your child astray on anything, that'd be problems, wouldn't it? Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. With an exclamation point. I'm just gonna let you all figure out what Paul means there. No, I'm not, I'm gonna talk about it. So... Paul's saying, hey guys, those leading you astray, they're telling you you have to be circumcised in order to be legitimate in God's eyes. I hope they cut a little more. That's what he's saying. That's how serious this is. If ever we need, don't ever say the Bible's boring, y'all, all kind of stuff. If ever we need to really be clear of the gospel, it's always but now, oh my word. I mean, the first generation of Christians usually fights for it. The second generation enjoys it, and the third generation loses it. You see that all over town right now. You'll see the grandparents who were in their 80s, they love Jesus. They're committed to their church. They support that church financially. They always have. They're telling their neighbors about Jesus. They're praying where anybody ever met in your entire life. They read their Bible regularly. Like they, they believe the gospel. They'll, they'll go crazy over false teaching. Then you have their adult children who are you know, in their 50s and 60s. And they claim to be Christians, but it just kind of, you know, it's, it doesn't really interfere with their lives very much. It's just kind of an accessory. It's a prayer before dinner. It's just, it's just we go to church when we can. Like it's, it's just not really, not really much. The generosity to support the mission's not there. Uh, like mission, maybe if like we go somewhere, you know, overseas for five or six days, I'll do that, but I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm not reading my Bible. It's just that next generation just sort of enjoys the benefits of, I guess, Christianity, but isn't really committed through conviction to it. And then there's the third generation, which is their 20-year-old kids, and they're nowhere to be found when it comes to the church. Except for Mother's Day when there's pressure on them to go, or, but belief-wise, they're not there at all. They've walked into beliefs that they might claim to be Christian, but it is some sort of American spirituality. 
So what is it that can blind us? What happens? One's a lack of Bible reading. Like it's amazing how important that is for us to be reading our Bibles. It's not my job to read your Bible for you. Like that you need to be reading your Bible. The second one is just indifference. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, whatever, I'm a good person. I believe in God. It's like I'm an atheist, that kind of thing. And before you know it, we've drifted or we have no discernment. Next one's pragmatism where we might think a church is fine or that everything's okay just because it's working. Like, oh, look, there's people coming. Look, oh, look at all the teenagers or whatever it might be. So we think that that teaching's okay because it works in terms of getting people to come to something and we have to reject that. Maybe a good deed or word by the teacher. Like, just because someone's a false teacher doesn't mean they don't ever say some good things. So we'll just point to like, see what he said there? That was good. That was, and, and ignore the other things that are completely disturbing, those Galatian false teachers, those, I mean, those Jewish people who, who were teaching the Galatians, they had some legitimate beliefs about Jesus. It was the other things that were the big problem that wound up being massive things, like the piece on the bridge, if you remove it. Another one's a personal uplifting experience, or maybe that person, maybe that, that false teacher, one time you were having a hard time and they had a message that was helpful for you, so you're fully on board and don't discern all the other things that person is teaching. Or maybe a false idea of Christian unity, where you think unity is the chief goal and that it's unity for the sake of unity and not unity that's anchored on something, that's anchored on Jesus. So why does it all matter? One is a love for God if we're going to love God, we're going to care about what it is that he has had to say. And when people misrepresent him, add their own opinions to it, take things away. Fundamentalism adds things to God's word. Liberalism takes things away. We want to reject both those things. That's not moderate. That's not center. That's just the Bible. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about theology. Uh, the next one is a love for God's word that we care about his word, we want to rightly divide the word of truth, we want to study it truly. The third one's a love for neighbor. Love for neighbor, because what's gonna happen? Others are going to be led astray. And the fourth one is a love for unity. We want the church to be united, it has to be united around something, and that's the truth. If unorthodox beliefs are happening in a congregation, you know what it's gonna do? It's gonna divide the congregation. I don't mean opinions, which they can if they're not kept as that, and convictions need to be kept as that, and preserved by church membership, by the elders of the church, and then the non-negotiable things are things that we must all believe to be Christians, but I wanna go back really quickly to the love for neighbor and the witness, because it's really common to hear people say things like, if we, when they, when they see Christians disagree about something, it's a, it's a bad witness to others. Can that be true? Sure, it can be true. But I would actually argue differently. That when we contend for the truth, it's actually a good witness to others because it allows them to see what Christians really believe as opposed to what we don't believe. And that can be really beneficial because what are the things that make unbelievers be really turned off a lot of times. The prosperity gospel. So to help them understand, that's not what we believe here. We don't believe it's God's will for everybody to be healthy and wealthy and live your best life now. Because like, we don't believe, like, oh, y'all aren't those people? We're not those people. <laughs> you know, like that, that, that can be helpful. That's not saying, oh, look at us, we're good, they're bad. It's just going, hey, we don't believe those things here. That can be helpful. An example of that would be, um, I, I've, 
my, my uncle uh, is, is an atheist. And uh, we, we have a, a, a good relationship, but it's been a little rocky at times. We never like had it out or anything. It's just been kind of tense uh, because of what I do for a living mainly, not because I'm a Christian, just because I'm a pastor. Uh, so he thinks of me in certain kind of ways and has you know, these kind of preconceived notions about me because of what I do for a living. And he really had been just kind of strange towards me for a while. Again, always nice to me, but just kind of this weird tension. Like he would come and visit and his family would come to church and he wouldn't go, even though his nephew's the pastor, just to like, he wouldn't even like entertain it. Granted, he's an atheist, I don't expect him to go, but wouldn't even entertain it, like nothing. Like he just hostile towards it and everything. So I, I had a conference I had to go to out close to where he lives. And anytime I'm close to him, I try to go see him, have lunch, have a meal. And we went over to, to, his, to his house and he was a little weird to me at first. And he asked me, in the conversation, sitting at the table, what I thought about a certain pastor who has a lot of notoriety in their city. And I just kind of looked at it and I was like, I don't agree with that guy at all. At all. And I listed the things that I disagree with and why that I don't line up with that person in any way, shape, or form. It's crazy what that did. It was like this weight came off of our relationship. Because in his mind, Christianity is this guy in his city who is all over the, you know, gets seen all the time and is, you know, just very billboards and the whole deal. And, I mean, just everywhere. So in his mind, he's thinking, my nephew Dean is that. Because he's a pastor and that guy's a pastor. So they're the same thing. He still has the same beliefs. He came to visit about six months later to see my family here in Tallahassee. He came here that Sunday morning. He came here to church that day. And he sent me the nicest email that I've ever received from him afterwards about just how proud he was of me. Again, he's not a Christian, so he isn't, like, and just how he appreciated it and respects me and all these kind of things. I didn't cave on my beliefs for a second with him. I preached the same gospel I preached every week that Sunday he was here. But he realized that this kind of over-the-top stuff teaching that he hears from this pastor that's not from the Bible in his community that's very well known is not me. It matters, guys. What we believe matters for the witness of the church because there's so many different messages being proclaimed out there and I'm not saying City Church Tallahassee has the market on what is true. I'm saying the Bible is what is true. So we're gonna be people who err on the side of just being too biblical. Why? Because we care about God and we care about each other and we care about our witness to the world. What would be reached the true Christ? In closing, this quote from a pastor friend of mine, unity in Christianity is always built in the truth. The deeper the truth, the deeper the unity. Don't settle for a superficial unity. Press into the deep truths. Press into Christ. Then rejoice with those whom the Spirit unites you to. Let's care about God's word. This is the conclusion of this series. Let's make sure that our beliefs are legit. And if you want to, make, if you want to figure out how yours can be legit, I, I would love for you to uh, maybe if you're just struggling with that and your theology and those kind of things, I'd love for you to go to our resources page on our website uh, where you can, uh, our growth page where there's resources available. Every week it goes out on our social medias. There's resources for the week of podcasts and books and those type of things. There'll be folks available up front just to say hello to, connect with. We want you to connect to this church and connect to a church that's serious about the Bible because we believe God's love for us. We want to make sure we're not distorting that by anything else of us. 
And that really matters a lot. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful you've given it to us. Uh, we're thankful that you care so much about what we believe because you care so much about yourself and you care so much about us. What an awesome thing to know that the creator of the universe cares for us. We're thankful that we have been called by you, that we are loved by our Father, and that we are kept in and for Christ. So I ask will be people who contend for the faith, not out of spite or competition, but out of genuine care for you, care for our own souls, and care for others. We believe it's Jesus plus nothing else that brings salvation to sinners. And we thank you for his death and resurrection and look forward to the day that he comes again. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.